Welcome to LongTrailPodcast.com, a new series of podcasts about Vermont's Long Trail, the oldest long-distance hiking trail in the United States. We are podcasting from Camp Rough and Tumble in Faston, Vermont, our hiking home in the Green Mountains. I'm Ruff, and my wife, who is also my partner, is Tumble. Today's podcast recalls my hike of Vermont's Appalachian Trail Section 1, from Route 4 to Main Junction to Vermont Route 12, a total of 24.1 miles. Tumble dropped me off at the Route 4 LTAT parking lot around 8.30 a.m. The weather forecast called for sunny and warm for the next three days. My plan was to hike the AT North for 24 miles. 23 on the AT only. The first mile is LT and AT and spend two nights in AT shelters. Except for the one-mile hike north on the long trail to Main Junction, this trail was new for me. My goal is to complete the AT section in Vermont so that I will have hiked all of the White Blaze Trail in Vermont. This hike will allow me to complete one-half of the remaining AT trail. After crossing some punchins and signing in at the trail register, I started uphill through fields of nettles and touch-me-nots. I really didn't feel well and had a hard time catching my breath and getting my legs in gear. I began to wonder if my 12-mile hike two days prior from App Gap and then out the Battelle Trail was so wearing that I hadn't allowed sufficient time to recover. Plan B was to backtrack to Route 4, hike up to the Inn at Long Trail, and call Tumble for a rescue. But this was where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. So I drank lots of water and pressed on, my only concession being to take it more slowly. I reached the familiar main junction and marveled at the two diverging trails, one going north to Canada and one heading east to New Hampshire, a simple undramatic fork in the trail, populated by wooden signs, announced distances to seemingly far-off destinations like Canada and Katahdin. In 2003, Tumble and I went left to continue our fast-tastic end-to-end adventure. Today, I went right to seek the unknown and to travel through more of my beloved Vermont. The trail wound around the north side of Deer Leap Mountain, passing junctions with the north and east ends of the Deer Leap Trail, which goes up and over the mountain and offers views of Killington and Pico Peaks. And the Sherbin Pass Trail, which heads south to the Inn at Long Trail, crosses Route 4 up to the summit of Pico and intersects the Long Trail on the west side of Pico. It was typical southern Vermont trail, wet up and down with some rocks, but not difficult. Along the way, I met an older man, bare-chested and not carrying a pack or water or using poles, who sported a big smile and said that he was testing out his legs for future hiking. He was obviously pleased with his results. After all the junctions, the trail smoothed out even more, and I passed a lookout which offered waste-up views of Killington and Pico. Then I started the long descent to Gifford Woods State Park and passed some young people puffing their way up the hill from the park. The trail had some rocky down parts, and as I neared the park entrance, I heard a couple of backpackers behind me. The man and woman caught up to me, and we hiked together into the park area and onto the asphalt road. They were from Maine and were through hiking the AT, Georgia to Maine, this being the second time for the man. As the white blazes suddenly became infrequent inside the park, they engaged in a familiar, reminiscent of Tumble and Me, discussion on whether or not they were still on the trail. I relaxed and enjoyed their banter, figuring that by this time 
they had their trail-finding communication down to a science. My most heightened concern at losing the trail occurs most often when the trail joins a road, whether paved or unpaved. The protective canopy of the woods and a usually well-worn path are much more reassuring. The couple headed off to use the phone at the park office, and I continued on, quickly spotting the trail as it slanted off southeast into the woods just before the road reached Route 100. Very quickly, I too reached Route 100, crossed the road, and spotted the trail at the edge of the parking lot. Twenty yards later, the trail crossed Kent Brook on a nice wooden bridge, and I decided to stop and filter water, having been out now for over two hours, and not being sure of the next good source. The water was running strong, and I took the next fifteen minutes to fill the empty third of my bladder, and also my Nalgene, for a good measure. As I moved on, the extra weight was noticeable, but not overwhelming. The smooth, soft, and shaded trail ambled along Kent Pond and offered pleasing views through the trees. I passed a Sobo thru-hiker who assured me that, although there were plenty of ups and downs, the trail ahead was fairly easy. With the rigors of Maine and New Hampshire's whites behind him, he seemed full of spirit and vigor. Fantastic! Next, a group of three Nobos passed me, and they seemed bent on doing mileage. As I later learned, Nobos are up against a deadline of sorts, since Baxter State Park in Maine, the home of Mount Katahdin and the A.T. Northern Terminus, closes to campers on October 15th. So those who plan to finish the trail this year keep track of their mileage and plot their progress against what remains. The hikers scope out the terrain and conditions, measure them against their resupply needs and opportunities, and the calendar, and grab extra mileage whenever they can. In some cases, this doesn't leave much extra time for trailside chit-chat. Katahdin is some 460-odd miles north from Kent Pond. I hiked on across smooth trail with gentle elevation change. When I came to a wide dirt road, a double white blaze indicated a right turn, and I followed. As I walked along the road, I strained to see the next white blaze or a spot a sudden turn into the woods. Whenever I didn't spot a blaze as often as I was as I would like, say on every other tree, I would turn around to see if there was one for Sobos. I call this sophisticated navigation technique cheating. I followed the road for four-tenths of a mile before coming to a T with another road. I could see Quimby Mountain looming in full profile above the T. I sneaked peaks at my altimeter and the long trail guide and instantly knew that I was in for a long and serious climb of 3.7 miles to something called the, quote, height of land, unquote, on Quimby. The trail was not technically difficult as it repeatedly switched back up the mountain. What was difficult was breathing and lifting my legs. As I trudged up with frequent rest stops, I realized that I was getting old in a single afternoon. I really became annoyed with the guide's height of land, HOL, description. In the woods, and particularly in Vermont, no, one never knows when one has achieved this height. Up, up, up you go to a perceived height, and then, alas, another height appears. One that is even higher than your present height. Note, above tree line, this is rarely a problem unless it's dark out. So where is the HOL? And do I have to be in New Hampshire before I realize that I missed it? At 1.20 p.m., I reached an east-facing knoll with a nice tree-shaded spot and declared it to be the official Quimby Mountain, HOL. I took off my sweat-soaked pack, plunked down, and called Tumble before lunch. 
To my astonishment, the call went through, and we had a nice chat. I told her I was calling from the HOL, and she seemed very pleased. Consulting my condensed version of the Long Trail Guide, which is one eight and a half by eleven page filled with scans from the appropriate guide pages, I figured that I was about two miles or so from the Stony Brook shelter. On the way, I passed through a sunny power line clearing with a view south to Killington and crossed another woods road. The trail was really beautiful and easy to traverse. Around 3.30 p.m. I looked up and noticed a small sign on my right that said Stony Brook Shelter. I knew by watching my altimeter that I was close, but I could have easily sailed by the unobtrusive sign. Whoa! I turned down the shelter trail and immediately caught sight of the three-sided lean-to structure. It was big enough to stand up in and was set in an open wooden air wooded area with plenty of tentable spots behind it. There was already a tent set up way behind the shelter, and an upper fifty-ish woman, who can really tell ages unless they're in their twenties, sitting in the shelter, eating dinner next to her extended sleeping bag. I said an immediate hello and set about scouting for a hammock-hanging locale. I took a couple of turns around the area and picked out two nice trees about fifty yards in front in a nicely wooded area. I strung the hammock and then lugged my stuff over to the shelter and conversed with the woman while swatting at the numerous mosquitoes. She was from Virginia and proudly told me that she was about a week away from finishing the entire Appalachian Trail at a spot in southern Vermont. She had broken her wrist down there in 1999 and was now hiking south from Maine and finish, finishing at the spot of the accident. I congratulated her and then hiked back to the trail and down to the water source, a non-running stream that contained large and deep pools of water. There was a young couple filtering there who were Sobo A-Tears, heading for the shelter. I went back and cooked my veggie chili with rice dinner while the Virginia woman climbed inside her triangular tent-slash-bag that she hooked to a single nail on the wall of the shelter. She said she was in there to get away from all the mosquitoes. So I cooked and talked to the bag. The woman was an unemployed lab tech water treatment testing person trail named Jason's mom. She said that her son wasn't a hiker because he said, quote, there's only room for one crazy person in the family, unquote. When other hikers arrived at the shelter, they thought it strange to encounter this talking bag with a distinct southern accent. I wondered if it was something Disney could use. The couple that I saw in Gifford Woods came in and set up their tent. Their names were Fig and Just Visiting. The guy talked all evening about how much he knew about the trail and hiking in general. I passed on taking notes. A couple of nobos came in and set up their little tents. They had started in West Virginia and were loving it. Their names were Rocky and Bullwinkle, and the latter had a small stuffed moose on a key ring attached to his pack. Rocky said he calculated he needs to eat 6,000 calories a day, and he was not able to do it. They had stopped today at a deli on Route 4 near Killington and had stuffed themselves silly. Then they both pulled out huge hero sandwiches, inhaled them, and continued by munching on packages of Mrs. Wagner's pies. I felt a draft sitting next to them. Another lady from Virginia came in, slow and steady, and she set up her tent on a small hill above the shelter. There ended up being at least ten people around, and I think only two slept in the shelter. Eight tiers seemed to prevent, prefer tents as the shelters of choice. Except for talking to Rocky and Bullwinkle, 
I found the others almost totally centered on themselves and got tired of trying to engage them in conversation. The guy in the tent setup that I saw when I first arrived never appeared, and only an intermittent cough let us know that the tent was occupied. It started getting dark around 8.30 p.m., and I climbed into my hammock for the night. Except for some small critters flitting by and the warm temperatures, the night was uneventful, and I grabbed several good blocks of sleep. When I got out at 6.30 a.m., most of the hikers were gone, and those remaining were packing up. I didn't see anyone cook breakfast. They just grabbed a snack while they packed. The tent with the invisible guy was still back there. I cooked and ate my oatmeal, packed, privied, and was on the trail by 8.15 a.m. I crossed the stream, and while the morning air was nice and cool, I could tell that it was going to be warmer than the day before. I encountered a surprisingly rocky section and descended a neat wooden ladder, handmade out of logs. It was leaning almost vertically and looked strong enough to support King Kong should he ever happen this way. The trail was covered with crushed leaves and they made for a nice cushion. There was almost no mud. The mud was probably shipped north to the Monroe skyline on the long trail. I climbed up and then I climbed down. I crossed woods roads and then I re-entered the woods. Around 11.15 I crossed a road named Chateau Gay Road and came to Mink Brook, which was running strongly. I decided to filter here, maintaining my thinking from yesterday that it was good to filter early so that I could drink throughout the day with Abandon. Abandon proved to be a good drinking buddy, but I couldn't get him to pick up the tab. Also, like yesterday, I knew that a more significant climb up to a place called Lakota Lake Lookout, a 640-foot elevation gain in 1.1 miles, was about to begin. I huffed and puffed up the switchback trail and watched my altimeter tick off the elevation gains in increments of 20 feet. The trail finally leveled off and I stopped to call Tumble. I reported my progress and it was good to hear her voice. I restarted and the lookout soon came into view. It was around 12.15. I stepped out into the sunlight and saw Lakota Lake down below set against a nice backdrop of mountains. Unlike at home in the Med River Valley and on the Monroe skyline, I am unable to identify any landmarks. But I was looking at Vermont, so it was okay with me. As I resumed and began climbing down a somewhat rocky area, I began to notice how hot the day had become. Hot and humid gets me into my discomfort zone, and I hoped that the conditions didn't exact a toll that I didn't want to pay. After I had dropped down the slope, I spent the next hour hiking along a ridge of sorts populated mostly by hardwood trees, grasses, and low-lying bushes. The trail was as smooth as the rest of this section and undulating with well-spaced ups and downs. When you're putting in mileage on a hike, there are times when you just have to keep yourself going. This was one of those times. There was no exciting scenery and no real checkpoints listed in the guide. I was hiking towards something called Lookout Road, whose junction would get me to within 2.6 miles of the next shelter. It seemed interminable and I was definitely tiring in the heat. My feet started to hurt, and suddenly I was feeling the weight of my pack. So I kept on blaze hopping and trying to calculate my progress. I have always given myself the message, keep going and you'll get somewhere. It helps me to methodically place one hiking boot in front of the other, no matter the distance yet untraveled. By 1.15 I came out at the junction of the dirt lookout road. The AT went right, downhill, and assigned to the lookout pointed left and referred to what I had later found out was a private cabin with a view. I debated hiking uphill on the dusty path to check out the view. 
Side one said, Hey, you're here. You have time. This is an adventure. So why not? And the side two said, Look, it's hot and buggy. You're tired. And you're hiking over ten miles today as it is. The first side won me over, and I trudged upward. It soon became obvious that the trail was more than the sign advertised one-tenth. And then I came to another sign that read, Private property. All persons entering do so at their own risk. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Is this lawyerese I'm looking at, or are these people hostile? It was most likely the former, but now side two grabbed the microphone and said, Oh, tired one, so now you're about to have shotgun pellets for lunch? Like this so-called lookout could possibly be something you haven't seen before? And notice the incline you're on. Just how much further is this ninth wonder of the A.T. world? Okay, so I nodded and headed back to the A.T., muttering, Who needs this anyway? The road down was a pain. It was wide, but littered with lots of pointy rocks, and the air was filled with mosquitoes and other assorted flying dental impressions. And, of course, as roads will have it, there were few blazes to follow. I did my best impression of a trudge, and recognized the moment as my A.T. hike low point. At least I had found it. I came to an unmarked intersection with trails in several directions and selected one. To my delight, I spotted a blaze on the edge of the woods. Several more blazes followed, and then I turned right on another small woods road. You don't want to take a nap in this section. Finally, an AT marker that read, Welcome Foot Travel, appeared beside a wooded trail. It was 2 p.m., and I figured I had somewhat less than two miles to go. The trail took me up another hill and then started another descent. I was shelter-ready at this point, and at 2.45 p.m. spotted the Winturi Shelter Junction sign. I walked downhill for two tenths and came to the shelter. Structure-wise, it was an identical twin to Stony Brook and was built by the same two guys. No one else was there, so I put down my pack and immediately started my camp routine consisting of scouting around for a hammock spot, setting up the hammock, and then filtering water. I roamed all over the area and found two, but only two, suitable tree sets for my hammock. I selected the best one and easily set up the hammock. Next, I followed the sign labeled water and went down to what appeared to be a very dry stream bed. I mentally inventoried the water I carried into the shelter to assess whether I had enough to make it until tomorrow. When I hit the calc button and it came back, maybe, I decided to walk up the stream bed a bit. There were tons of swarming mosquitoes, so I figured there had to be some water since these guys didn't have a long lifespan. Sure enough, I spotted some very small pools, but one of them had enough water for me to filter. I swatted and filtered and filtered and swatted and triumphantly carried my liquid prize back to the shelter. It's a good thing I didn't put this hike off another few days. I read the shelter register and noted how all of the hikers from Stony Brook had stopped by around lunchtime to sign and then it hiked on. Amazing. Another hiker came in while I was sitting in the shelter. His name was Mark, no trail name, and he was from Brooklyn, by way of Oregon, a high school math teacher for a special arts public school with a specialty in restoration, as in historical things. He was section hiking and had to delay this hike due to a recent coughing-related Ill illness. As we spoke, I began to realize that he was the invisible one in the tent back at Stony Brook. He had left New York at 5 a.m. the day before and was so tired that he went to sleep in his tent in the afternoon and just kept on sleeping. Small woods. Mark was unhappy with using chemicals to purify his water and having to wait, 
So I told him about my first need purifier and showed it to him. He said he intended to get one for his next hike. A bit later, a young guy and then a young gal came into camp. They were through hiking separately but knew each other. He was Pogo and she was Princess. We all conversed and somehow snakes came up and Princess grabbed her digital camera and showed me a photo she took of a rattler in Pennsylvania. It was a huge diamondback, all curled up, and she was very proud of it. She said it was an incredible coincidence that she saw it in a place called Rattlesnake Mountain. Okay. Mark soon pitched his tent and went off to sleep. Man, this guy can sleep. A little later, I went to my hammock as Pogo and Princess got their sleeping bags ready for a stay in the shelter. No one else came into camp. After it got dark, I was laying on my back listening to little woodsy sounds, and suddenly there was a loud rumble in the woods, followed by what sounded like a snap and a gunshot, and then total silence. Nothing. I wasn't about to get out and investigate, but figured that since all sounds had stopped, it had to be that a big tree had toppled in the forest. So yes, it definitely creates a sound, and it had me wondering if I could actually sleep while attached to the top of my hammock's bug net. I awoke early the next morning and started packing up. It was too warm for me to make oatmeal, and my hike out to Vermont 12 was only four miles, so I figured I could make it on water, dried pineapples, and a cliff bar. Mark left camp before 7 a.m., and I was on the trail by 7.15. The trail continued downhill over rocky areas with a couple of recent blowdowns thrown in for good measure. I stopped to take photos of some bright pink swamp roses leaning up into the hillside sunshine. The trail continued on a gradual downhill, and the vegetation began to change. At first it was thick hardwoods, then lots of ferns, then the woods took on a more open look. I passed an old stone wall consisting of long, flat stones that must have been quite difficult to maneuver into place. The guide mentioned an old foundation near a, a woods road, and I came upon the overgrown road shortly after 8 a.m. I stopped and looked back into the woods and spotted the remnants of a big stone chimney. It looked interesting, so I backtracked up the trail and bushwhacked into the woods to get a closer look. I could see the outline of the foundation and cellar and the pile of stones left from the chimney. As I hiked on, I tried to imagine a family living in this fairly remote and now wooded area, greeting the, day, the days and making lives for themselves. How many times had they looked out and traveled the contours that I was now crossing? What kind of feelings did they get from being on this spot? Just beyond, the woods opened up dramatically with tall trees spaced wide apart and very little undergrowth saved, save for batches of leathery ferns pushing through the expansive bed of dead leaves. It was so nice and I felt like I was gliding up and down. The trail took a sharp turn and I hiked steeply uphill toward the bright sunlight. Just as I reached the top and the start of an open meadow, Hiker Princess caught and passed me, and we commented on how beautiful the trail was. I wished her luck on our hike as she quickly disappeared down the trail. The meadow was so peaceful, and at one spot I could see Mount Escutney in the clouds far in the distance. I dawdled, breathing in the sweet smells, snapping photos of wildflowers, and just not wanting to leave the area. It was 8.45 a.m., and I had less than two miles to Route 12, where Tumble was picking me up at 10.30. The trail itself was so gentle, I had to keep reminding myself that I was, I was on the AT. I definitely wanted Tumble to see this some day. I continued on, past a couple of Sobo guys trudging their way up the hill, and dropped steadily. 
Soon I could hear traffic noises from Route 12. At 9.10 I entered the open meadows above the highway, and soon joined a world of high summer abundance, thick meadows of wildflowers curling around a narrow grassy path that at first went down into the fields, then across, then down again. The sun was bright, and the heat, humidity, grasses, and flowers combined to form a blanket of harmony. I floated through it all, snapping lots of pictures, and sensing a sort of reward for the long miles behind me. I climbed over a stile straddling an electric fence, crossed through a cow pasture, complete with cow pies, and finally came to a little wooden bridge over a stream which bordered the AT parking area alongside the highway. It was exactly 9.30 a.m. I set my pack down and munched on the remains of a cliff bar. Pogo soon came over the bridge and headed north up Route 12 towards a farm stand where he planned to buy some fresh produce and a pie to later share with Princess. No one else came through, and at 10.10 a.m. Tumble pulled up with her big smile, cold Gatorade, and some fresh peas. Life was good. I could get used to this. This has been a presentation of LongTrailPodcast.com. We hope you will return and enjoy future podcasts about Vermont's Long Trail. Until then, this is Rough of Rough and Tumble, Long Trail End-to-End, 2003.